I think um, all of us are somehow driven by a kind of um, wish to become really good at something. I think for me it took a long time to sort of figure out what that would be. I spent most of my youth on a skateboard, skateboarding all the time, you know, every single day, practicing, 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 and, um, you know, got okay at it. And then, you know, other things like music, I used to play the violin for many years and never got good at it, but also spent many, many years struggling to, uh, to pick that up. And I think, you know, studying was never you know, something I disliked, but it was also not something I felt immediately good at. So I came out of high school with really low grades and no real sense of where I wanted to go. But I think I've always been driven by a kind of curiosity and a kind of wish to be, be good at something. And I think down the road, I figured out that um, studying was actually something that um, fulfilled those criteria in some ways and was sort of fulfilling on a personal level. And it also took me a long time to be, become good at that, I think, you know. The 90s are almost at an end. You're sitting in a restaurant that has just turned into a bar for the evening. You order a Manhattan cocktail. And speaking of Manhattan, that is what you see when you look out of the huge panorama windows. Windows of the World, the place is called. And it's located on floors 106 and 107 of the World Trade Center's Northern Tower. On the outside of the Windows of the World, the Manhattan skyline forms the backdrop for New York City. Skyscrapers, flashing lights and huge billboards. You take a sip of your drink and then you hear it. Music, hip-hop, jazz, and funk. It's all coming from a turntable, and the guy standing behind it flipping records is a young man from the Danish island of Moon. And one day, he'll turn the tables for sure and become a well-known professor at CBS. My name is Kasper Christensen, and this is a CBS Wire podcast series we call Outside the Box. It's a series where we meet some of the most colorful people at CBS, who with their stories and personalities make the university a happy and diverse place to be. And now, I'll leave the stage to the funkiest professor of communication and digital transformations at CBS. Here's Mikkel Fluerbom. I think I've always been driven by a kind of curiosity, interest in trying to understand phenomena, understand, you know, how is society changing? What's the kind of human condition that we are entering and so on and so forth. So that kind of broad curiosity, I think, drives me a lot. I think I'm also driven by the different kind of um, rewards you get from this work Mm. as a professor. And that's often about teaching, for instance. I mean, this... Being in this room with a um, hundred people who are really eager and really curious to to learn something or understand something, and you spend a couple of hours with them and have this sort of um, connection and a kind of um, you know you can see in their eyes that something is um, they're picking up things and they are sort of uh, you know getting their head around 
something new. So I think that's rewarding. I think it's also rewarding to try and sort of shape public discussions around these questions that I'm interested in. So how can people in academia help politicians and policymakers, you know, think a little different about questions about technology and data and algorithms and so on. So I think that's kind of that public or or political discussion around technology is also something that drives me. Mm. And then obviously also making money in the sense that you have the freedom that comes with um, being paid and uh, be able to live in a nice apartment and, Mm. and so on. So I think I'm driven by those kind of things. How would you describe yourself? You know, someone who spends a lot of time with family and friends and um, enjoys all sorts of good things in life, like music and food and wine and um, travels when possible and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, someone who um, found a fairly good combination of things that um, makes up for uh, a life that I... For a good life, yeah. Yeah. But obviously also someone who you know, has to struggle. I've just been through a really terrible period with back pain and a slipped disc and so on. So I guess it's also, you know, humbling sometimes to realize that just when you think that things are really um, coming together, it's also fragile, right? Mm. Just when I became a professor uh, with special responsibilities, which is a kind of five-year intermediate um, position, I remember celebrating this, you know, with lots of friends and a big party and a huge bottle of champagne, like eight liters or something like this. <laughs> and uh, I got this email from a colleague in Canada saying, oh, congratulations, and I, I hope you don't get uh, hit by the melancholy of fulfillment, mm. is what he called it. And I was kind of puzzled by that um, phrase. Um, didn't really make sense to me because why should I be, you know, where's the melancholy and, and so on? Because I just made it, in a sense, I just accomplished career-wise, what I really was struggling for. But I think that email sort of stayed with me and it actually hit quite soon after. This realization that sometimes, you know, reaching the goal is so much easier and so much more kind of rewarding than actually um, getting the job, so to speak. So, Mm. you know, it's it's also a kind of a complex... uh, I don't know, situation to be in when when you accomplish things and then you realize that maybe getting there was a lot more fun than, uh, or at at least a different kind of um, challenge that you can't sort of keep riding on. You need to readjust and and Mm. find other ways of sort of being in in what you're in and so on. So I think, you know, I don't think life is easy, but it's uh, also challenging in interesting ways. You seem to have a great interest in the process. Um, am I right? Or, I mean, if things came to you really easily, if you were born from a family that just had tons of money and you were born from a, I don't know, a background and went to a school that just gave you everything. Uh, I mean, I've, I've lived in California and other places and seen you know, kids who go to really high-level, amazing private schools and go directly into really amazing high schools and then go directly into MIT or um, Stanford University and so on. So the kind of schooling they get is obviously really um, at a different level than than what we get in other parts of the world and so on. So if you have those kind of building blocks, you get to results easier. Mm. So I think it's also a consequence of simply 
having to struggle a bit to get there. So if you don't enjoy the process of um, you know building a career or building a house and so on, building a house is really you know if you only focus on results, mm. it's a long haul, right? But yeah. if you get into the nitty gritty of putting up that wall and uh, getting those windows to work and so on, I think there's a kind of joy to that. So maybe you're right. Yeah, mm. I kind of not by necessarily by choice, but uh, because you have to enjoy mm. the process if you want to get good at something that's kind of difficult yeah, and doesn't come to you um, naturally, so to speak. Yeah. What would you say are your biggest uh, strengths and, and weaknesses? I think, I mean, it takes a while to sort of become good at something. And I think I haven't been the sort of quickest learner in a sense. For instance, when I was at university, I was super shy. Mm-hmm. I would You would not see me speak up in class. You would see me uh, turn red-faced when I was uh, doing a presentation in front of uh, other people and so on. So I think that is obviously a weakness that you don't, you know, just have that confidence or that um, it comes to you naturally. But I think it's also a strength in a sense that you can move yourself out of that situation. And I mean, now... Speaking in front of 500 people is one of the most fun things I know, right? So so that uh, long haul that it takes to take something that you're not so good at and you don't feel comfortable with and sort of getting all the building blocks together that allow you to, down the road, f- feel really confident about it and re- actually really enjoy it. Mm. So I think in terms of strengths and weaknesses, you know, maybe I lack the kind of focus that would have helped early on, but... I like to fight for things in a sense. So I think that's a strength to just mm. keep on fighting and become good at something by doing it over and over again. And I think in academia or in research and teaching and, and so on, you know, it's probably not the easiest thing to pick if you want to become good at it because it's a humbling experience, I think, mm. to see how difficult this job is in a sense. You yeah. know, top level research is so hard to get out and get published. And the, so the whole craft of doing this kind of work is really difficult. Mm. Um, same with good teaching, same with um, you know engaging in public discussions and so on. I think all parts of this job is kind of hard. It's not something you just walk in from the street and and do. And it's also why people bloom quite late. I think you know it mm. takes a long time mm. to get there and so on. So I think it's a strength to have that kind of um, ability to push on and simply. Uh, make it uh, even though it's not a kind of easy uh, direct route but a long sort of winding one and and a lot of a lot of hard work so i think yeah hard working is one of my strengths that's for sure mm. you know i went to a very special school a Waldorf steiner school a waldorf school where you spent many many years painting and doing theater and you know writing your own books you don't have school books you put them together yourself, so to speak, and so on and so forth. So that kind of school experience obviously doesn't um, prepare you directly for university and for business school and so on. So I think my sort of um, journey has been a really kind of winding one, one that's gone in many directions and not just um, finding something that you immediately become good at and then uh, excel at it. So it's taken me a long time and I think I'm still sort of, um, you know, a little bit, back and forth.
As a child, did you ever uh, dream about becoming a professor? No, that was not my dream. I wanted to be... Um, i used to love reading this cartoon, Tintin, The Adventures of Tintin. So that was actually my uh, dream as a child. I wanted to be a reporter, mm. have a white little dog and travel the world and um, write newspaper stories and so on. So that was definitely my um, childhood dream. My early plan was actually also to study journalism, um, become a journalist. So that was my, uh, for a long time, my kind of dream. But I also at some point realized that, well, if if that's your dream, then you should be writing all the time, right? Hmm. And I was not really writing all the time. Okay. And I think at some point I, it came to me that maybe I don't just write because I don't really know what I'd be writing about. So I think entering academia and becoming interested in, in, in this kind of a world was also about sort of building the foundations for having something to write about in a sense. Hmm. Because I was not that kind of outgoing person who would just go out and interview people and so on. I think I was, you know, I wanted building blocks. So I think maybe that characterizes my life, a kind of always a sense that once you have things, some things in place, you can build on that and do what you want and so on. So I think entering academia was not my childhood dream. I had other dreams and so on, but it it became a perfect place to combine those things in a sense. So I, you know, I'm not a journalist now, but I... I spent most of my time writing, right? Mm. I have a tech column in the Danish newspaper Politiken and um, also write obviously academic art- articles and books and book chapters and so on. So in a sense, you know, when I look back, I didn't become Tintin and never got that white dog. I got actually a different kind of dog when, as a child. Also really pissed me off that I, <laughs> <laughs> that I yeah. couldn't get the dog I wanted. But I think, you know, in some ways it, comes together. I mean, it makes sense to, uh, and I obviously you don't know that as a child, you think, okay, if you're going to write, you're going to either be a journalist or uh, an author, right? Mm. And you don't, I didn't really think of academia as a place to be a writer in a sense. So I think it makes sense. So I was studying at a Danish university first for my bachelor's degree. And uh, I would say the kind of environment in that place never appealed to me. It was never something I thought, wow, this is the kind of work I want to do. These people are amazing and so on. That was not how I felt about it. So I, um, at some point, got really interested in questions about globalization and um, decided to go to the US where these discussions were you know, more mature and easier to kind of um, find places to study and so on. So I went to um, something called the New School for Social Research, a university in Manhattan, New York, and uh, obviously also had a dream about living in New York. So um, went there with my then girlfriend, and we studied together for our master's degrees. And that was a place where your professors were so different. The energy around those people, the kind of um, environment that you became part of, amazing people like Jacques Derrida and Nancy Fraser and so on, walking around the halls and... um, spending time with you. So, you know, I had these professors, we would maybe be 20 students in a class and they would take us to a museum after class to talk about some of these questions about globalization or they would take us out for dinner and um, just, you know, spend time with you. Mm. So I think that was the moment where I thought, okay, these people have something going on for them. They have some kind of energy and curiosity and kind of um, generosity 
that uh, that really appealed to me. So that, I think that was the moment where I said, okay, this kind of work makes a lot of sense, and these people and so on really um, appeal to me. Obviously, it was also a kind of interest in the content and the sort of um, chances you have as a researcher to really dig into something and focus on something for a long time. But really, I think the people meant a lot to me, this sense that, okay, these people have... Um, they're just driven by ideas. Mm. I mean, they're just, you know, spending their lives exploring an idea. Mm. And I mean, that for someone who's curious and someone who's, you know, starting to see what research could kind of um, contribute to society and also to your kind of own progress or development, I think that was really uh, something that made me want to do this. So as you mentioned, uh, your research interests mainly concern how organizations engage with digital uh, transformations. How did you come become interested in, in this uh, specific area? Was there any event or any incident that made you interested in it? Yeah, so I'm old enough to have you know lived a life where computers and the internet, especially the internet, was not really part of uh, everyday life. So I remember being a student and, um, you know, trying out, going on the internet for the first time. This happened in Denmark, but specifically, I, I, I was, um, during my bachelor's degree, I studied in Montreal in Canada at Concordia University, and that they were a little bit ahead of Denmark, I think. So we actually had fairly good computers with internet access and uh, were able to search for things mm. at the time, right? Search engines. Um, you know, being part of that kind of, technological transformation that's about um, computers moving beyond being just good typewriters but actually connecting to each other and allowing for these kind of uh, forms of interaction and so on. I think that yeah ignited my curiosity about this. So mm. already when I was doing my bachelor's project I think I was interested in these questions about what's going to happen to politics and so on um, as a result of these technological advances. Mm. So I looked at how different groups like neo-Nazis and um, left-wing kind of radical political activists were using um, different kind of internet groups to mobilize and discuss and um, kind of challenge politics in various ways. So I think I've always been interested in how these kind of technological changes weave into um, um, how how we do politics, how we uh, run organizations and so on and so forth. So I think... The curiosity about this phenomenon that was at the time fairly kind of narrow and separate from most of our lives. I mean, we talked about back then cyberspace as the kind of independent, separate domain where you would log in and could communicate with people and then you would log off again and spend most of your life outside these spaces, right? Mm. But increasingly, obviously, today there is no outside. We are sort of connected. We're never offline in a sense. We're, you know always somehow relying on digital technologies, whether we shop or commute or uh, listen to music or read the news or, or whatever. So obviously that kind of transformation is also what drives me now, what happens to all of us, individuals, children, um, people who are interested in politics, people who uh, have their attention taken away from other parts of life through these technologies and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So all these questions about how 
you know, phenomena that at some point were at the margins suddenly weave or make their way into every single part of human life. And also, I mean, down the road, how we will sort of um, think about maybe limiting those forces. So maybe there's a future ahead of us where that is kind of post-digital, where we decide that some parts of life are too good to be uh, digitalized and datafied and sorted through algorithms and so on. So I'm interested in those phenomena also. Mm. Will we, down the road, maybe sort of um, set some limits for what, where and, and what kind of roles digital technologies should, uh, should play? So also when it comes to my research topics and my interests at the moment, it's not sort of the same thing I've pursued all the way through. I started out being interested in big questions about globalization and so on. And increasingly I'm interested and have been for the many, past many years in these questions about digital transformations. But again, from a kind of really curious starting point, that's about how is society going to change? And it could also mean that, you know, I could do other research down the road that explored a new kind of phenomenon that would uh, change the way things operate and work and so on. So I think that's one sort of um, way into this for me. Wanting to be good at something and, um, you know, figuring out that maybe academia and research and teaching and so on fulfills some of, some of those criteria. <laughs> I know that uh, beside your uh, academic interests and, and your research, you sometimes uh, spin records as a DJ under the name of uh, DJ Flubom. Can you tell me what that is all about? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and um, was always interested in kind of a US culture in the form that came at the time. So I was interested in Rap, hip-hop, breakdance, graffiti, um, skateboarding. So DJing was a kind of natural part of that sort of cultural movement, I guess. Um, and I have to say, I grew up in a small city far from Copenhagen on a small island called Moon. So there was not a lot, a big community around these things. So it was a fairly lonely, uh, you know, <laughs> fairly lonely journey. But you could obviously go to Copenhagen now and then and meet these other people who are interested in skating and DJing and so on. Mm. So I um, always hung out with DJs and at some point I think they sort of pushed me and said, just do it, you can do it, you know, it's not that hard. Um, so I got into DJing and um, record collecting and I only played like vinyl records and lots of stuff from the 70s, 80s, 90s, hip-hop, jazz, Brazilian, Latin that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting a few jobs in Copenhagen at a back then famous bar called Stereo Bar in um, Israelsplatz. They had this basement where they would book DJs every Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And I got a few jobs there and sort of got into, into that uh, small movement in Copenhagen. And then this was the time when I moved to New York to study. Mm -hmm. So I came to New York at a time when there was also a big Danish festival called Danish um, Wave and a kind of alternative version of the big national um, cultural festival called Danish New Wave. And um, some Danish people living in New York who also, you know, were DJs and so on. So I actually got a few jobs in New York when I just when I moved there. I think one of the most the jobs that I'm most sort of happy about was in the World Trade Center. 
um, on top of the World Trade Center. Uh, there was a bar called Windows on the World that had amazing windows, you know, all the way to the floor um, with amazing views over Manhattan and so on. And obviously uh, an iconic place because yeah. just a few years later, it they both came down, right? Mm. So I played a lot of clubs in, in New York just when I arrived um, and used that again to sort of um, make my way into DJing in New York. And actually, as I was studying, this was a way for me to make money. So I would play in bars every Friday and Saturday or Thursday and Friday um, around Manhattan and make money that way. Mm. Because obviously studying in New, in New York is really expensive and it took a lot of funding and um, a lot of saving up. I was a waiter for many years and in demolition and all this stuff to save up enough to be able to to go to university in Manhattan. You know, and then moving back to Copenhagen after I'd finished my studies, obviously I could come back and say, oh, I've been a DJ in New York. And uh, so that's the kind of, you know, how you navigate through not being that good at it, but still good enough to uh, to survive in that in that space. So I ended up working in clubs in Copenhagen for almost 10 years at Vega in the they had this sort of upstairs lounge in Vega that I used to play a lot, and we had a weekly or monthly a monthly club in Rost, another Danish mm. nightclub, and also smaller jobs around the place. And I still do it now and then. I mean, I it's still super fun, and it's the kind of you know when you when you have a dance floor to build, you know you have to be a hundred percent tuned into your your audience, so to speak. So I think you know it's a it's a fascinating job in a sense because you have to be so focused and you can't, you know, look at your phone or talk to anyone really. So I, I still cherish it a lot, but obviously, you know, fewer and fewer clubs have DJs and, you know, fewer and fewer cafes and smaller bars and so on can afford this. So it's, it, you know, there's not a lot of work out there and there's a lot of competition and so on. So I still do it now and then for, you know, friends and some colleagues, I played at the head of the department of department of organization when he turned 50. I played at his birthday in a in a nice venue and so on and so forth. So I do it a little bit here and there for, for friends and some occasions. Um, but it's it's certainly a, a minor part of my life at this point. But I still cherish it a lot. How many records do you have, do you think? So I... You know, they take up a lot of space. So in my attic, I think I have a couple of thousand records wow. and lots of them really uh, amazing records, old records from my time in New York City and so on. So coming back from New York City, I had, you know, two record players and a thousand records um, to ship and so on. Oh, wow. But Sounds I think fun. on an everyday basis, I have maybe 500 in the living room that uh, I still play and enjoy and so on. I have... With some things, I have really good memory, so I can remember, you know, the moment I bought e each single record and uh, the day almost and almost the feeling. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty attached to those records because they, you know, it's also just a, especially in these times where everything is digital and everything is accessible, I think it creates a different kind of um, attachment that you have a piece of vinyl that you um, take out of a paper sleeve and... Uh, put on a record player and you have to turn it over at some point and so on. So I think I like the kind of material aspects of those of those records, but also obviously the music. I mean, I'm still totally into music. That's a huge part of my life. And speaking of that, what what does music mean to you? 
again, I think it's culture. It's, you know, taking you back to... So a lot of the records I brought back from New York City were, you know, Latin records and Brazilian records from, you know, people who moved to the city in the 70s and tried to make a living, mm. you know, um, playing music and also getting impacted, obviously, by U.S. soul and U.S. funk and so on. So I think in many ways, you know, the the kind of cultural dimension of music attracts me a lot. And I think also the craft in a sense, you know, some people who become really good at something and uh, nurture those skills and experiment with those skills, you know, record after record and in different songs and in different collaborations and so on. I think that also really speaks to me. Mm. Um, and what else? I think just that kind of third space it creates, you know, where you are not talking to people or not working, but but simply kind of sensing yeah, so I, for me, it's a you know it's a huge part of my life. It really is. Miguel mm. Fluerbom, thank you so much for uh, wanting to talk with me about you and your interests and life and career. Uh, I really appreciated it. Thanks a lot. It was great talking to you. That's all for this episode of Outside the Box by CBS Wire about Mikkel Fluerbom, the curious, hardworking and record-flipping professor of communication and digital transformations. I hope you found him just as cool and fascinating as I did when I met him. Please tell all your colleagues, co-students and friends at CBS about our podcast. And be sure to listen again next time when you'll meet a new, equally eccentric and interesting person from CBS. My name is Kasper Christensen. Keep in touch. Mm-hmm.